Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We now reach the final point of the Buddha's 10-point mission statement for the monastic Sangha. Recall that our purpose is to understand the intended role of the Sangha in Buddhist culture or society. The final point is the fostering of discipline. This is to maintain and adhere to the monastic code by which the Sangha itself lives and which includes the very mission statement we're itemizing, among other things. The Sangha is one of what have been called by sociologists moral communities, each of which lives according to a shared set of values and norms that is, according to an ethical system that determines the behavior of the individual members of the community and that produces a degree of cooperation in service of the interests of the community, which are generally shared by the individual members. Society has many kinds of moral communities, some of which are not so moral. For instance, a street gang or a company of soldiers can form a moral community, moral in our sense simply that they follow socially prescribed rules of conduct. Most religions define a moral community in which all members of a church, congregation, sect, cult, or whatever adopt well-defined values and norms. Some of these are very strict. Orthodox Judaism is a primary example in which an elaborate set of strict rules of conduct have allowed a diaspora to survive as culturally distinct groups for many centuries. The modern Amish are another example that follows a strict code of conduct and also exhibits the quality of survival as a distinguished movement, even while surrounded by non-Amish. The discipline or winia is the monastic code, the extremely strict values and norms laid out by the Buddha that have determined the conduct of the monastic members of the Sangha through the centuries. What I want to show here is that the Sangha as a strict moral community also exhibits this quality of survival and that its survival has been critical to the survival of the sasana, that is, to Buddhism. Without the survival of the sangha, there would be no one charged with upholding the sangha's mission statement, so there would be no one charged, in particular, with instilling faith, nor in upholding the integrity of the dharma. Moreover, without the survival of the sangha, the optimal context for living according to the dharma would have disappeared. Buddhist practice would have suffered, and so there would have been few able to even understand the Dharma. I like to think of the Sangha as the string running through a mala, representing the history of the sasana. Once the string breaks, the beads scatter in every direction.
Monastic discipline is certainly the most archaic and orthodox element of Buddhism. While scriptures vary throughout the Buddhist world, particularly with the proliferation of the later Mahayana sutras, the regulations of the Vinaya are nearly a constant factor throughout Buddhist Asia. The one notable exception is Japan, long subject to governmental interference. Elsewhere, the discipline is preserved by those who maintain the discipline in their own lives and who ordain nuns and monks who will maintain the discipline. As long as this upheld, the Buddha tells us, If the monks would live the life to perfection, the world would not lack for arahants. As long as there are fully awakened ones, or at least partially awakened noble ones, in the world, the Dharma also will not go too far astray. The core of the Vinaya is a master list of hundreds of regulations that apply to every aspect of the monastic's life. The Vinaya provides for the comfort of the Sangha in its internal mechanisms for ensuring harmony among its members. It provides insulation from everyday worldly concerns and enforces renunciation from worldly attachments, thereby providing an optimal context for practice and spiritual progress. Although a monk or nun might enter the Sangha with a big head, the regulations of the Vinaya close virtually every opportunity for the individual to act in a self-centered way. Its strictness and austerity ensures that its membership is exclusive, appealing to those most motivated to live according to the Dharma. The Vinaya implements a number of interesting features that provide evidence of the Buddha's greater social values. Minimal hierarchy, decisions made by consensus, equality, no recognition of caste or class, and equal regard for women's welfare and practice. A key element in the social life of the Sangha is a requirement that the Sangha be utterly and helplessly dependent on the support of the larger community for all of its material needs, most notably daily alms. But alongside this, the individual monastic is prohibited from endearing himself to lay folks or from claiming any spiritual attainments, even if true, as a way of garnering special treatment for himself. The Vinaya, like the Dharma, evolved into different forms in different parts of the Buddhist world. Several versions are known, and three are still in use today, one in Southern Asia, one in East Asia, and one in Tibet and Mongolia. Each of these has at its core the almost identical master list of regulations. This means that the Dalai Lama, the monks at the Sidigu Vihara, and Thich Nhat Hanh, representing the three living Winia traditions, follow almost exactly the same rules. However, these texts differ in much of the supplementary passages, much of which are clearly of later composition. I've written of the Sangha in ideal terms, yet a pervasive problem in the history of the monastic Sangha 
as in every institution in the world, is the challenge of getting its members to adhere to the rules. The Southern Theravada Winia, the one I follow, describes a particularly unruly group of monks called the Group of Six, although there seem to have been more than six of them, who are reported to have lived at the time of the Buddha. Their mission seems to have been to get away with as much as they possibly can. The following account is a sample, but it's clearly embellished. Now, at that time, unscrupulous monks were in residence at Kitagiri. They indulged in the following kinds of bad habits. They planted small flowering trees. They plucked them. They tied them up into garlands. These they take or send garlands to wives of reputable families, to daughters, to girls, to daughters-in-law, to female slaves of reputable families. They eat from one dish together with wives, with daughters, with girls, daughters-in-law, female slaves of reputable families. They drink from one beaker, they sit down on one seat, they share one couch, they share one mat, they share one coverlet, they share one mat and coverlet, they eat at the wrong time, they drink intoxicants, they wear garlands, perfumes, and cosmetics. They dance and sing and play musical instruments, and they sport. They dance when she dances. They play musical instruments when she dances. They sing when she dances. They dance when she sings. They dance when she plays musical instruments. They dance when she sports. They sport when she sports. They play on a checkered board for gambling. They play on a draft board. They play with... Imagining such boards in the air, they play a game of keeping stepping onto diagrams. They play blowing through toy pipes made of leaves. They play with a toy plow. They play at turning somersaults. This is just the beginning of the passage. It goes on for about five pages. As a former layperson, I don't recall ever having that level of fun. The group of six show up repeatedly in the Winia, providing comic relief in connection with the origins of various monks' regulations, always trying to get away with something, from possessing instruments of gold for removing dirt from their ears to dressing in loincloths. Although this passage is almost certainly farcical, it must have reflected some recognizable truth. Some monks had fun writing such passages. We get an idea of the fictional nature of this particular account when we turn from the monks' rules in the Winia to the separate but overlapping nuns' rules. We notice that in clarifying the nuns' rules, sure enough, a group of six wayward nuns appears to provoke the Buddha's formulation of an almost equivalent set of rules that the group of six wayward monks had inspired. The Winia imposes sanctions on wayward monks depending on the severity of the transgression. Mostly, it is an honor system supplemented by peer pressure. There are no corporal punishments, but rather confession to other monks is typical. A monk can be expelled from a local monastery for repeated infractions. The worst case 
are a few disrobing offenses for which the transgressor is simply no longer a monk by definition nor qualified ever to ordain again as a monk. Even if he manages to hide a disrobing transgression, if he continues to wear the robes, he is impersonating a monk and living a lie. The monastic sangha, even as possibly the historically most durable institution on the planet, is not so exceptional in this regard. This is particularly because people frequently ordain with mixed intentions. In many Buddhist lands, for instance, there's a degree of economic security or educational opportunity consequent to becoming a monastic or simply social status. As a result, there will often be monastics with poor discipline, little interest in spiritual attainment, and little capacity for inspiring the laity or sustaining the sasana, bloating the local sanghas, living alongside those sincere and inevitably more adept monastics of pure and noble intention. The Winia provides little in the way of mechanisms for shedding wayward monastics, except in the most egregious cases, rather favoring eventual reform. Fortunately, there are other factors in the design of the monastic sangha that limit degeneration and probably underlie the durability of the sangha. First, since the sangha has no central control and little hierarchy, less than exemplary behavior is always localized. Second, there is a kind of thermostat that provides a check on and means of recovery from local degeneration. With a decrease in purity comes a decrease in the inspiration experienced by the laity. With a decrease in inspiration, support for the monastics decreases. With decreased support, negligent monks of mixed intentions leave the sangha or fail to enter it in the first place, while the more committed adepts remain in the sangha undaunted. With the increased impurity of the sangha comes an increase in the inspiration experienced by the laity, and so on. Third, the arousing of faith in the faithless and the increase of the faithful is likely to be the only elements of the sangha's mission to be seriously compromised by wayward monks. The reason is that pure monks will tend to form an adept clique within the Sangha to carry on the remaining functions much as they would in a less bloated Sangha. They will tend to become noble ones and will be accorded the most influence within and outside of the Sangha. In spite of the inevitable weaknesses found in any institution, the Buddha designed the institution of the Sangha with one of the best track records ever to date, one that has endured the longest and the one most critical to the well-being of the sasana. It has also produced a long series of remarkably accomplished, wise, and compassionate people of great spiritual attainment. In our time, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Cheng Yen, and many nameless monks and nuns living in villages throughout Asia. As we've gone through each of the points of the Sangha's mission statement, I've drawn parallels with the modern scientific community. 
The discipline of the scientific community is perhaps its most archaic element. Interestingly, it is not preserved in a uniform document and not so deliberately studied as the Buddhist Winia is. Yet, working scientists and university administrators seem to have an implicit sense of what discipline entails and how to regulate it and are very sensitive to any assault on its integrity as a community. These various elements of scientific discipline are for the most part very old, implicitly understood by working scientists, and show every sign of enduring into the future. Science is sustained by a moral community of working academics and researchers who live according to values and norms of behavior that ensure efficient social cooperation in producing scientific discoveries. Central to this is the centuries-old scientific method, which is supplemented by strict ethical standards for conducting research and disseminating results. Failure by an individual to adhere to these standards generally entails extreme sanctions and professional death. The community enjoys a high degree of insulation from worldly interference through a system of tenure and the principle of academic freedom. Just as the Sangha is an optimal context for spiritual excellence, the scientific community is an optimal context for intellectual excellence. We focused in the last talks on the social role of the monastic Sangha. Next week, we'll take up the social structure of the broader Buddhist lay community.